the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation. Cynthia Rukti, our guest, a look at Tattered and Mended, the Art of Healing the Wounded Soul. Let's get to your calls. Andia in Redwood City. Good evening. Come on in with your comment or question for Cynthia Rukti. Oh, hi, Cynthia. Thank you for taking my call. So I was I was calling to um, ask you, when we do have the opportunity to heal or become whole um, by mending by way of tragedy that's been presented in our life, um, how do we how do we clear space um, for that healing process when we sometimes we feel overburdened with shame or guilt mm. about what has transpired? Oh my goodness, that is that's such an excellent question. That is that is so much uh, uh, a very much a part of many people's battle when they're in the middle of this and they're wondering how do they come to that place of wholeness when when shame or guilt have just overtaken them, and there are. Some methods, I think, that God has been talking about in His Word for for centuries and applies to us very much today, too, of ways that we can create an atmosphere in which we're going to heal, best heal. We know and understand that He's invited us to come and heal. How do we create that atmosphere, as you referred to that? And I think one of the the starting places is is, um, for us to stop to stop resisting, in a way, what it is that he wants to do. So we have to kind of almost roll ourselves into his studio, if it were, like uh, could be expressed like that, and surrender that, and even surrender the shame and the guilt to him. There's a verse in Psalm that where Dave, the Psalms, where David is talking about um, the sins that he had committed, and the and the sins that were committed against him, and how he's crying out to the Father God, and he, he understands then that he's not only forgiven, but even the guilt of it is gone. And when I saw those verses for the first time, I thought, oh, Lord God, that is so, it so expresses where so many of us are, that we see our shame and our guilt standing in the way of the mending and the healing that we need. And he's inviting us to even leave that on the floor of the mending room, leave the shame and leave the guilt on the floor of the mending room. The things that we do that help create that atmosphere, so many times what they involve so much are are crawling up closer into his embrace, leaning on him, understanding that what his word says is true, whether we feel it or not, and then uh, stepping into that place where we will allow ourselves to believe what he said is true, that even our shame and our guilt can be gone because of his great love for us, because of this heart of compassion that he has for us. There's a verse in the Word, too, in Isaiah that says, nobody can measure the depths of God's understanding. I think in that, in this kind of case especially, you've, you've brought up such a great point. Our knowing that he understands that those kinds of things are a barrier to our healing makes us a little more free to say, all right, God, I will, I will trust you even with that. So 
that that mending can begin. Is it important sometimes to to expose some of that in a in a safe place? And I ask that question because normally when we're burdened by overwhelmed by guilt and shame. It's not something that we want to talk about because we feel bad about it. We're embarrassed by it. Mm-hmm. And yet I wonder if, Cynthia, there are times when, and obviously you have to be very careful in terms mm-hmm. of selecting where and to whom you might reveal something like this. But if I wonder if sometimes even just being able to speak the words can be the beginning of the healing process. I, I think that's absolutely true. And I, I know in my own life that there are there are times when I need to be vulnerable and other times when I need to be very selective about how open and honest I am about a certain shame or guilt. And there are, I have this handful of trusted friends that I can trust to know God's heart so well that I can, I can be that open with them and they won't be condemning and judging, but instead they will sit with me, they will listen to me, and they're their love for me won't change because of that. I I hope and trust that you have someone like that in your life that you can confide in. And maybe once it gets laid out on the table and we see, ah, I got it out of inside of me where I've been where I've been kind of hoarding that shame and guilt. It's out now and exposed to the air. It's going to dry up so that healing can begin. Mm. I agree with that, and I think I think too that has something to do with our personal relationship with God too. Oh, so much so. He obviously is our first point of listener. <laughs> he's our he's our first point of who we go to, and we confess that that guilt to him. We confess the shame to him. We confess that what has happened to us or what we have done by our own choices is something that we know is not what he has for us long term. He doesn't want us to live in that kind of environment and atmosphere. So I think you're absolutely right about that, that our, the strength of our relationship with him, the growth in our relationship with him is going to make a tremendous difference in that very point. Andy, thanks so much for your call. I'm reminded of uh, a dear friend and colleague who, as it turns out, had been the victim of childhood sexual abuse at the hands of a uncle and had carried this secret for 40 years and uh, is now doing a wonderful job in terms of healing and restoration and recovery. And we got to talking one day, and I said, well, I'm curious for you, what was the breaking point? Uh, Where did the healing process, the restoration process, when did did God pull out the big darning egg for you and begin begin that restoration? And, And here's what she told me. She said, the first time... I was able to speak the words, I am a victim of sexual abuse. It was so painful to even speak the words. She, she could not bring herself to do it. By simply speaking the words, it began that process of healing. Again, you have to be careful in terms of the environment, to whom and where you share those intimate details. Uh, certainly, as we mentioned with the caller a moment ago, uh, the nature and degree of your relationship with God is, is a critical factor in all of that. But sometimes it's just that first step, you know, as they say for the alcoholic, just to admit that there is a problem mm-hmm. is oftentimes the most key important step to the beginning of that healing, uh, that journey of healing. When you talk about those first steps, I'm reminded, too, of a story that is included in the book 
uh, a friend of mine who had had an experience much like that in childhood. And one of the, it was, there were actually some torturous elements to it. And one of the torturous elements was that her abuser liked to hold her head underwater until she passed out. And of course, after that, then um, showers and baths and shower time in gym class at school and lakes and rivers and and swimming and anything like that. She had once loved swimming. And of course, that kind of a experience robbed her of that love for swimming. And it kept her in a place of fear, obviously shame too, and, and fear for so many years. And this thing that she had loved so much, swimming, had been stolen from her. And there came a time later on, it wasn't right away, of course, and she grew and matured and she matured in her faith, but there came the day when she walked up to the edge of the water. And then the next time she walked up to the edge of the water and she dipped one toe in. And the next time she was able to go in up to her ankles and the next time up to her knees. And eventually she laid back in the water and swam. And she she expressed to me that what she had done was reclaimed mm. that from what had been stolen from her. And every time she steps into the water now, every time she swims, she says in her heart, you cannot steal that from me. And obviously it took a great deal of courage and it took many, many steps in that process. But it was a reclaiming and amending of something that had been so deeply wounded. And the courage that it took came from God also. And she, she knew that. It wasn't a human-manufactured courage. He, God truly made art out of that circumstance and that situation. And uh, it, it's a story that I just love to rehearse because of uh, what it tells, it, of the hope that it gives the rest of us, that sometimes it is that one step. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Cynthia Rukti with us today. A look at Tattered and Mended, the Art of Healing the Wounded Soul. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation. Cynthia Rukti, our guest, a look at Tattered and Mended, the Art of Healing the Wounded Soul. Let's move next to uh, Christina in uh, South San Francisco, my hometown. Christina, good evening. Welcome. You're on KFAX with Cynthia Rukti. Hi, good evening to both of you. Um, I'm wondering about healthy boundaries with family members that have been very dysfunctional. I've been emotionally abused by quite a few of them since I was a kid and then um, just stayed away from them, but I forgave them, prayed for them from afar. And then just recently, I decided to tell them exactly how I felt in a healthy way, and um, they just went into denial. So my question is, I do forgive, but I'm just wondering, once you forgive and forgive, I mean, this is like over 20 times, is it okay to have these boundaries? Is it okay to say, I do forgive, but doesn't mean I have to associate and open myself again because there's just no trust. It's been broken so many times. Sure, and there's that sense of hurt and resentment that's there. And, and let's talk about that, uh, Cynthia, in terms of creating those healthy boundaries and I guess also um, setting realistic expectations. Speak to that too, if you would. I, I, uh, I'm not an expert in that field, psychologically speaking, 
but what I have observed from friends of mine and from from people in my family and extended family who have had situations that that have been like this, I think I think my heart would say, and I believe that it's supported in God's word too, that absolutely it's important to have those healthy boundaries. For us to step back into a place of danger or to step back into a place where we're we're made vulnerable to future woundedness is not helping our healing at all. When we create that atmosphere of healing, that, that creative space where God can make art out of the problems in our lives, that we have to be careful that we're not submitting ourselves to re-injury. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't forgive, but oftentimes God uses the fact that we have memories as a protective layer mm-hmm. for us that keeps us from being reintroduced into injury again. If we're going to have a wound that is going to heal, it can't get infected. An infected wound is not going to heal properly. We need that place where we are, we, where we feel protected and we feel safe. And sometimes that does mean that we have to make some difficult choices about some emotional boundaries. And, and think of the child who uh, burns his or her hand on the stove. Mm-hmm. Um, in the future, that child will be very cautious around the stove because they associate it with pain. And so, as you point out, sometimes that memory can also serve as a, a protective layer, so to speak, to know that there are certain individuals or circumstances that are not safe and therefore should be avoided. The other thought that comes to mind, and I'm, I'm not a doctor on this uh, either, Christina, but I played one on the radio once, <laughs> um, setting up healthy expectations as well. Sometimes when we are working through the process of of hurt and resentment and we want to exercise forgiveness, um, sometimes our expectation is that the, the person who has wounded us uh, will see our pain, acknowledge it, confess, apologize, change their ways, and, you know, the end of the story, and they all lived happily ever after. It doesn't always happen that way. And sometimes we have to be reminded that the person who injured us or wounded us, they are wounded too. Oftentimes our behavior comes out of our own sense of brokenness and, and bad experiences in life. And, and so we, we tend to kind of you know mimic what we've experienced and bring it upon others. Be mindful that they are still wounded or broken themselves. We talked earlier about the perpetrator who, you know, violates a a young girl, the uncle that can't be trusted. That kind of behavior can only come out of somebody who for themselves is wounded and broken. I'm not making excuses here. I'm just explaining that we have to set our expectations proper or in balance and understanding that as we are on the pathway toward healing and restoration, experiencing the glory of receiving and, and, and being bathed in God's forgiveness, those who have wounded us may not be in the same place. They may not be in the position to return uh, a, a sense of remorsefulness and an apology or wanting to, to, to restore or, or heal or make whole again. And so sometimes it's just a matter of saying, you know, I'm going to release the anger and bitterness, not hold on to that. Use that as a boundary, as you mentioned a moment ago, Cynthia, and then recognize that just because we've reached out and and forgiven them doesn't mean that now everything is going to be flowers and roses and we're going to get along just dandy. I mean, that that oftentimes is not the case. I think there's a, a quote from the book, too, that I hope will be an encouragement to you that 
mending a tattered soul, and we're talking about our tattered soul, your tattered soul, is unrelated to the inability to change the past. Mm. And that's one of the beauties of the artwork that God does within us, that he, he does not have to remove the past, which isn't going to happen. Um, that history is there. But instead, he can make us whole in spite of the past. It's not dependent on being able to make it as if that never happened to us. And uh, certainly in your situation where there were multiple times of these disappointments, that would be true. And, um, and I think you're very wise in thinking that one of the things that you need to do is create those very carefully and prayerfully established healthy boundaries. Um, you've expressed yourself to your family now. They, they've been in denial. Uh, you've prayed for them from afar, you said, which is such a beautiful thing. And now I believe that, that you can rest in the fact that God will de- deal with them, and you were doing the right thing and moving forward in a healthy way as you trust and lean on Him. All right. Thank you so much for the call, Christina. We've got time for one more, Jarrell. Is that right? Okay. Let's uh, jump over to um, Regina. Come on in then with your comment or question for Cynthia Rukti. Hi. I have a question, and and I'm so happy that you guys are having this. Um, I have a a girlfriend who, well, she's a new girlfriend to me, but yesterday she revealed that um, she had been molested by her older brother. And my question is, how do I help her? I mean, I don't know. I have told her about my experience and where and how God took me through the steps toward, you know, healing and and restoration. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how to help her to get it, to get, you know, to get it, what it is she needs. What an excellent, excellent question, and coming from such a compassionate heart. You're to, to be commended for that. The first thought that comes to my mind is your willingness to be a listener scores so many more points than if you had the right words or if you had a technique to share with her. Your willingness to be, to be a friend, to remain a friend after you've heard this story, to be faithful to her, to show her examples of what it's like to live a hope-filled life, and just, and just be evidence of that around her. There are so many things that, that we feel helpless to do when we want to encourage somebody else who's in such a place of such deep emotional pain as this is. And that mending process isn't going to be easy, and everybody's timetable is going to be different for their mending and healing. But your very presence in her life and your listening ear are going to provide that safe place for her in which she can mend, too. Um, There will eventually be times when you can suggest a song, maybe a worship song that was meaningful to you. There will be other times when you can suggest other things that might be beneficial to her, but quoting scripture verses for her and trying to give her the plan that worked for you is going to be less effective, and, I, and it's just such a beautiful thing that you're, you're expressing this and asking this question. But, but I would encourage you to 
serve as that listening ear for her. And eventually she's going to see some of the answers coming to her own heart and mind as she leans on you and as you represent Jesus to her. Cynthia, boy, it's been a great conversation tonight, and I think we've got something started here, this process um, of how God comes along in our lives and can uh, mend and restore that torn, tattered fabric, that tapestry of our life, and uh, discover and experience what it really means to have the art of healing of the wounded soul. The book, Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul. The new book, by the way, is newly published by Abington Press and available at uh, Christian bookstores uh, throughout the Bay Area. You can also check out Cynthia's website, Cynthia Rukti. I'll spell that. That's Cynthia, R-U-C-H-T-I, CynthiaRukti.com. Cynthia, thanks so much for the time. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I think we've all been through it. In fact, you might be going through it right now. The pain of not just being offended by the, uh, the actions of another individual, but, but, but downright injured by their actions. In some cases, it might be intentional, meaning that they are engaging in behavior to intentionally cause harm to you or embarrassment or awkwardness uh, to, to offend you in some fashion. In a majority of the cases, though, it, it's somebody who has not made good choices, not taken into consideration the potential impact of the poor choices that they have made and the ripple effect, like the proverbial pebble in the water, how it travels across, and the further out it gets, the bigger the wave, the greater the impact. Other people's choices can range from careless to cruel to thoughtless to downright depraved. The question then for we as believers is, how do you deal with all this? How do you respond to it? Um, how, how do you go about finding hope in the midst of that uncomfortable experience or uh, sometimes life-changing event, and at the same token, reach down inside of you and be able to extend forgiveness. We are reminded in the Father's Prayer that we should forgive others as we have likewise been forgiven by the Lord. But sometimes as you're surviving the fallout of other people's choices, that's a very tall order. Joining us to discuss this is Cynthia Rukti. Cynthia is the author of a brand-new book called Tattered and Mended, the Art of Healing the Wounded Soul. And Cynthia, great to have you back again. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Well, I'm, I'm reading through the new book here, um, Surviving the Fallout of Other People's Choices, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, let me make a list of the people <laughs> mm-hmm. who maybe didn't intend to, uh, you know, in, intentionally engage in some behavior or action that would cause fallout or uh, injury back to me, but that was the end result. And trying to work through all of that as you're suddenly finding yourself picking up the pieces of somebody else's mistakes or bad choices. And I guess this runs the gambit of the husband who decides that, uh, you know, 
playing around on a spouse is an okay thing to do, and as a result, that marriage falls apart because of the infidelity, and the children are caught in the wake to, uh, you know, a, a child who's abusing drugs, and suddenly now you've got grandkids that you now have to raise as your own because your son or daughter the true parent is finding themselves, you know, uh, as uh, maybe a, a guest of the state in which you live. Mm-hmm. Tough stuff. And and we all know people like that. They're either within our own families or there has been a season when we've been that person who's been injured by someone else or there are people that we know of in our neighborhood, some of whom don't have the Lord to lean on for their source of hope. It's people that we hear about on the news, but but all of the stories that are written in the book, uh, Ragged Hope, Surviving the Fallout of Other People's Choices, they're real people, and they're all dear to me. These people are very dear to me, so their courage in sharing their stories, uh, all of our hope is that it will be, that those stories will in some way have some impact on helping other people learn how to find those holding on places when it seems like there are none. You know, the tough part of this, I think, for a lot of us is it, it's, it's difficult enough sometimes to deal with the fallout of our own poor choices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, Scripture is very clear that the wages of sin is death, um, that, you know, indeed we can find hope and, and forgiveness in a reconciled relationship with God, through the work of his son on the cross on our behalf, paying the price that we should have paid. Um, and yet that doesn't always mean that we escape. We might, while we might escape the eternal consequences of sin once we find forgiveness in Christ, of course, uh, but that doesn't always mean that we are able to escape the, um, the consequences of sin here on earth. The, the lifelong alcoholic who eventually comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ might well eventually still die from cirrhosis of the liver. That is the consequence of poor choices. But that's on us. It's when it's somebody else's poor choices. And this may not be something, as I mentioned earlier, Cynthia, where they intended to hurt us, but that was the end result. It's hard sometimes to dig down and say, Father, I want to forgive them, but wow, look at the mess now. I'm, I'm, I'm suddenly on their cleanup committee, and I don't remember signing up for this. And even beyond that, sometimes the person who is the perpetrator, if we want to use that word, even if it was just an, a, a mistake, a, a truly a, an, an error that they had no intention of making us bear these consequences, sometimes that person's fallout is so little compared to what... And they're oblivious, perhaps, to the, to the harm that they've caused us, or just dismissive. Completely. They may not even care that they caused that kind of a fallout for us. Or they, they've gone on with their lives. They have no idea the, the impact that has been in our daily lives, every daily decision, the expense financially that we pay, the, the price we pay emotionally for what they did. So, and, and then our caring about the, the others that they have left in the aftermath of their unwise choices, it, it really is a heartache that is a, it, it, there's nothing quite like that. There's nothing quite parallel to that. As you said, when we sin ourselves, we go and ask forgiveness. Sometimes we bear the, this 
tremendous guilt or burden of of shame because we have caused fallout for someone else. And there's that's another whole subject by itself. But in this particular instance, where I was reminded of what it was like to see that cloud of choking ash come rushing down the street after the Twin Towers fell. And seeing people who were caught up in that cloud, they could not breathe, and they couldn't find a place to breathe. They were covered in the dust and ash of it all, and there was no place they could go to find a place to take a a breath. That's oftentimes how we feel when we're caught up in the middle of this neck high or higher than that layer of the fallout ash when somebody has made a choice, one of these kinds of choices. Let's give an example of a a suicide. The pain in the heart and the emotional state and the mental state of the person who chooses suicide thinking that's an out for their own pain has left this trail of despair and heartache behind that they couldn't have imagined and we we know that many of them when they're caught up in a when when a, a suicide um someone contemplating suicide when they get caught up in that depth of pain and they see no way out they really are not measuring in their minds and their souls and their hearts the kind of fallout there would there will be for the rest of time in the family members that are left behind, those who are aching, wondering what they could have done to have made a difference, those who every holiday is different, every day of their lives are different because of what, because of that choice, that single decision. And you really end up stacking the emotions one on top of another, don't you? I mean, for example, it, it's one thing if we talk about the death of a child. Some listeners in the audience can perhaps relate to what a painful experience that is. I mean, as as we understand life, um, you meet, fall in love, get married, have a child in that order. They eventually grow up, and then you grow older, and then they bury you. Mm. For that to be reversed, not only now does the parent have to deal with loss, but stacked on top of the loss may be resentment, from what has been taken away from them, um, anger, a sense of maybe even seeing, the, no wonder the, the, the root of bitterness, it, it finds itself in such fertile soil when you're thinking, how, how can you, we've given you everything as our child, been available to you in every way, and you've suddenly engaged in this most selfish act, mm. and here we are now left in the wake of that. And as I say, Cynthia, I think the challenge here is that oftentimes people People just get caught in this quagmire of, of emotion, and no wonder that this, is, this can be such a, um, a block even to our relationship with God as we're trying to get all the questions to, or find the answers rather, the questions, many of which perhaps will never be answered. Mm-hmm. So true. We know, and we know from God's Word, that hope can't breathe bitter air. It can breathe despite disappointment and devastation and, and that great deep, piercing heartache, but it gets smothered by hatred and bitterness and anger and resentment and all those things that you were listing. But we're in this place then, if we're in the place of that agony, for us to be told, here's what you should do, is probably going to deepen our despair. If we're told this is uh, this is what you need, and we feel no energy to be able to even grasp 
the the offer of hope that is held out to us. That's a very, very difficult place to be. But also we know from our perspective, sometimes that hope we're looking for seems very ragged. It seems like there's practically nothing left to it. From God's side of the picture, it is as strong and as sure as it has ever been. And sometimes the only thing we have to hang on to is clinging to the truth of what we know for sure. I remember when my my um, children were little, and they would be solving, trying to solve a math problem or a science problem, or they would be uh, trying to problem-solve something else that was going on in their lives. And it would get more complicated and more tangled, and I often would say to them, let's start with what you know for sure. And it's such a wonderful problem-solving principle. So they would start there at the point of what they knew, and pretty soon as those pieces began to come together, one after the other, of what they knew for sure, what they could trust and believe in, they could get the problem solved. They could get to the end of what they were looking for. Now, we don't want to oversimplify it for the listeners who are thinking, this is, this is a deeper pain than you know, lady. But the truth of the matter is that is where we need to start. What we know for sure, hanging on to the God of hope, the one who even when, when we're in the middle of a very vulnerable place and we feel like we're sticking out there and, and all the arrows and darts are aimed at us and we just can't catch our breath, he is still the one who is our source of hope. Sometimes all we can do is just repeat that to our soul, even as David did in the Psalms, is just tell our soul the truth while we're trying to wade through the worst of this. And a lot of it is coming down to developing the ability to differentiate, because I think a lot of times when we get caught in the middle of this this pain and there's so much tremendous disappointment mm-hmm. that we kind of assign blame everywhere, including God. And it might be true that indeed this individual in our life, it's a spouse, it's a child, it's a sibling, whatever, has broken promises and as a result shattered some dreams. Mm -hmm. But we have to differentiate between their actions and God's actions. Mm -hmm. And we do serve a God of hope even at times when those around us might try to steal hope from us. We'll talk about that when we come back. Cynthia Rukti is with us tonight. Her latest book, Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul. Today we go a bit deeper into surviving the fallout of other people's choices. Wow. We've all been down that road, haven't we? Maybe that sin was not intentionally toward us, but we felt the wake of their bad choices And we feel as if somehow we're paying their price. Wow, how's that for a sense of injustice? This is like the proverbial automobile accident that damages your car, gives you whiplash, sends you to the hospital, and the drunk driver walked away without a scratch. Where's the justice in that? A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. That sense of pain that oftentimes leads to the desire for justice, maybe in the flesh, a revenge. It's one thing to suffer from the bad choices that we make, but what happens when somebody else makes a bad choice 
and the fallout is all on us. We are exploring that today as we look at surviving the fallout of other people's choices with celebrated author Cynthia Rupti. By the way, her most recent book, Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul. Cynthia, let's talk about this. Um, you know, I, it's, it's one thing for us to be injured by the poor choices of others, but then suddenly we feel as if oftentimes we're forced to pay the price and they walk away scot-free. Example out of the book, you talk about the couple who has spent their marriage life raising kids. They've made all the sacrifices that loving parents do. They've been there for all the school plays, all the sports games, driven them to, uh, uh, you know, band practice and soccer games and all of that and helped them mend, uh, you know, the broken uh, bones when that happened as well, uh, paid to get them through college, were there for them as they were getting married, all of this. And now, parents feel as if it's their time. They're going to enjoy uh, their time together. They're going to make plans for what the rest of their life or the second phase uh, post-empty nest looks like. And suddenly they find a major change. They have a child with children um, who from some poor choices has decided they either can't, will not, or are incapable of caring for grandkids. And now all of a sudden the agenda has changed. Mom and dad thought they were done raising kids and find out, no, we're about to go into it in the second phase of our life. We probably won't see the golden years of retirement until we reach our early 80s. Wow. And they're not only raising grandkids, they're raising hurting grandkids at the same time, too. So they have this drain on their finances, this drain on their their energies, this drain on the quiet that they maybe felt like they had paid the price to to desert to earn, and here here are these young ones under their care who are changing their daily schedules and changing everything about the way they thought life was supposed to look at that time. They're watching their friends; these grandparents may be watching their friends um, go on golf dates and travel more and all those dreams that they might have had invest a little bit more time in their hobbies than they were able to do while they were raising their own children. But then add to that that tremendously heavy gravity-like layer of concern for these children who are hurting because of the their parents' choices. And that is all pulled into this big pool of of disappointment and the cost that these grandparents are having to pay and that is not an uncommon story we we hear about it often these days so there again is one of those situations where it it can be a life or death situation or it can be one like this where they're just expected to do something, and they do it gladly because they love these children, and they want the children to be protected and cared for and to know that they are loved in the middle of the, the uh, aftermath of what their parents have done or if there may not have even been a second parent, parent in, the, in the picture at the time. So here we are in the midst of this kind of a daily burden that's placed upon us, even if to, to the public we would say, oh, it's not a burden, it's a joy to care for our grandchildren. It's still a drain in many ways. There is a hope there in the middle of it, and, and one, of the, one of the layers of hope is, 
is that these grandparents oftentimes have to kind of um, almost force themselves to make sure they're not missing the beautiful parts, the beautiful moments in the middle of that story. They have an opportunity to put those children to bed at night and know they're cared for, fed well, they're safe. They have the opportunity to watch some of those moments in their grandchildren's lives that they might not have had if the grandchildren were living with the parents somewhere else. And even though those might seem like small consolations, they are precious, and they do help to pad the pain of what they're going through. And to and, and the, another thing that enters in here that I'm, I'm not sure I even made clear in the book, but even that idea that the sacrifice that they're making will be rewarded in a huge way by the God that they serve and in the lives of those children as they grow. And, you know, ironically, and, you know, some are going to say, well, that's just sort of a pat answer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like a time heals all wounds. Sometimes we come up with these uh, these sort of stock or catchphrases that we pull out in the difficult, mom- difficult moments of life. But there is a reality that, uh, as you point out in the book, Jesus, uh, as depicted in not only his ministry on earth as evidence of it, but certainly within uh, the writings of Isaiah, Jesus is a man of sorrows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he knows what suffering is like. He is another one who suffers because at the hands of others. In fact, here's an amazing thing to put this in perspective. We sometimes, as we're discussing tonight, Cynthia, have to pay the price, pay the penalty for somebody else's poor choices. Uh, few, if any of us, ever sign up for that willingly. Few of any of us ever say willingly, I will take on this. I will pay the price on behalf of a son or a daughter or a spouse or a sibling that's made some poor choices here. And yet Jesus did so willingly and knowingly that he ultimately paid the price for our sins, Mm -hmm. our mistakes. And so if there's anybody who can really relate to what we're experiencing, it's Jesus himself, isn't it? And I think that's to our own survival in the middle of these things is knowing that the depths of God's understanding are limitless and that Jesus very well does know what that feels like to be paying a penalty he did not deserve on behalf of people that he loved. I was reading just today in Isaiah. um, It it had a beautiful description of someone who feels like they're... um, in such a vulnerable place. They're an easy target. They're easy prey that, that the troubles that have come upon them have made them feel like they're standing on a high hill all alone. And you can imagine that if you're in the middle of a war, what that would be like to be in that position. And that's oftentimes what it feels like then to us, that, um, that the verse in Isaiah 30, uh, 18 says, nonetheless, the Lord is waiting to be merciful to you and will rise up to show you compassion. The Lord is a God of justice. Happy are all who wait for him. There's so much in that short verse, so much there for us to know that God is a God of compassion. He longs to be merciful to us. He will rise up. He will show us his compassion and that he is a God of justice. And the joy lies in for those who will wait for him to exact that justice as we lean into him, as we, as we lean into this, 
this one who not only knows our sorrows but feels them to, to the very depths of his being and cared so much about them that he would provide a way for us to know freedom from what, what we should have borne in our own selves, but also that he would care enough to come alongside of us when we're hurting. He comforts, not, but not only comforts, he binds up those wounds that we have, the Bible tells us. And yeah, sometimes those, those, even a verse, a scripture verse, can sound like a pad answer. And that's not what we're trying to, to say here. We're trying to just point ourselves, and I'm talking to myself even as I say this too, point ourselves to the source of our true hope. Sometimes it's a bare, like, fingernail-like grip that we get on the hope that will, that will help get us through these times. And we're, we're not saying that this is a, that it's easy by any stretch. In fact, I tried very hard in the book to not make any of the readers, the potential readers of the book, feel that they were being um, cast, that their, that their despair was being um, disallowed, that, that it was being made light of, not in any way. Um, there's a beautiful verse in Jeremiah, too, that, where God is saying, because my people are crushed, I'm crushed darkness and despair overwhelm, and they certainly do. I I use this verse often from Jeremiah. They treat the wound of my people as if it were nothing. All is well, all is well, they insist, when in fact nothing is well. This is the same God. The same God who says he is the God of hope is telling us, "I, I get it. Believe it or not, I understand what this pain is like that you're feeling, and I have a huge heart of compassion and understanding. So here's the, here's the big challenge. As, as much as you're suggesting that we do not want to be dismissive, the pain, the disappointment is real. Mm-hmm. And yet oftentimes, I think one of the biggest roadblocks to hope, as we're discussing, is this root of bitterness. When we come back after a brief time out, we'll ask Cynthia to give us some insights in terms of how do we go about like removing that ugly weed in the garden that seems to just come back again and again and again and takes over everything to the point where our our eyes go to the weed first instead of seeing the beautiful rose that sits behind it. How do we go about getting to that root of bitterness and cutting it out so that hope can spring forth? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 